This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We hate to start the program off with an obituary, but sometimes when someone important, someone of note passes, well, we feel we should discuss it. So we're going to start out today's program by citing what we think is the most notable obituary of the week, that of Ray Taliaferro. Sadly, we noted on this program last week that Ray had been missing for quite some time out in Kentucky, and sadly his body was found out in the woods near where he had last been seen. Evidently, Ray Taliaferro was suffering from some degree of dementia, but at this point in time, the cause of his death is, is unknown, and um, we just note his passing with sadness. We also noted, I believe it was last week on the program, that a lot of the greats of KGO have now passed. We lost Dr. Bill Wattenberg in August of this year, and a couple years back, Lee Rogers passed away. Somewhere along the way, Gene Burns also left us. And talking about Ray Taliaferro and others, uh, Mick Mucus of KDVS noted on Facebook, I guess it was recently, that he once called in to Ray Taliaferro because he knew that Ray was talking about something or saying something he didn't actually believe. In this case, I think it was the banning of pit bulls. And as a host can do, I guess Ray more or less uh, went on a rant afterwards. Also sounding off in this chain was another individual who, who said the following. It, it's so good, I can't resist repeating it on the air here. Said ST, I think my favorite KGO moment was when Gene Burns was hosting his current events show on a weeknight and discussing the tyranny of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, only to have someone call in to say, I can't believe what you're saying about Robert. Without him, the wines of the Napa Valley would be virtually unknown, and Northern California's wine country would never have captivated the imaginations of vintners around the world. He went on, Gene, stunned and apoplectic, could only muster the response of, this is a joke, right? He added, I can't imagine his weekend dining around show could have been better than that. For the record, we approve of Gene Burns's slamming Robert Mugabe. And would note, in case you weren't quite sure, that that caller was undoubtedly referring to Robert Mondavi. Which is why, frankly, none of you have ever been to a show at the Mugabe Center in Davis. But sadly, there's more in the obituary column we must discuss. Some days back, magician and actor Ricky Jay has passed away at age 72. I am very sorry that in the back of the 1990s, I never had a chance to see Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants. Whenever I did see him perform uh, on television, I was always suitably impressed. His obituary by Harrison Smith notes that Jay, who was also an actor, film consultant, and renowned scholar of confidence tricksters, and exotic entertainers, was 72 when he passed away in his home. He apparently had extraordinary abilities when it came to the sleight of hand. He could fling a, uh, a playing card fast enough to stick in a watermelon. He developed the ability to throw them up in the air so they would come back like a boomerang, at which point he would clip them with a pair of scissors. Among his other abilities, he was certainly a master of deception and knew a lot of people who were out there performing uh, in the real world as con artists, grifters, 
And for more on that, we would refer you to the interview he did on Fresh Air with Terry Gross some years back. That, uh, that aired a few days ago, and, and I've, I found it enormously entertaining. In that interview, he said that uh, the person that you can really con is the person who believes he can't be conned, because according to Ricky Jay, we can all be conned. Which brings us to my third obituary. The 41st President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, died last week, but not before achieving his greatest accomplishment, which was to live the longest of any President of the United States, passing at age 94. Having, sadly I would note, followed the career of George Herbert Walker Bush from the 1960s till the present, I would have to note that I was rather astounded to see all the nice things people are saying about him. Which reminded me of that great quip by Garrison Keillor, who once said that people say such nice things about you at a funeral. It's a shame I'm going to miss mine by a few days. In the case of George Herbert Walker Bush, people just cannot stop saying nice things about him. Which, frankly, I'm a little puzzled by. Before becoming Vice President of the United States in 1980, because of a deal that James Baker cut with the Reagan camp, in fact, as I understand it, Baker and others came in to inform Reagan of who the Vice Presidential Choice had to be. Reagan was informed, it has to be Bush. And my understanding is that his response was, oh, really? Apparently Nancy chimed in and said, oh, does it have to be that whiny George Bush? But it was that whiny George Bush in 1980. He was sworn in with Ronald Reagan in 1981 and served eight undistinguished years as the Vice President of the United States, during which time it is my understanding, and if you have information to the contrary, please drop us a line, dear listener, at info at radioparallax.com. But it is my understanding that in eight years of cabinet meetings, he never spoke. When in 1988 he somehow managed to secure the Republican nomination for president, and there was some doubt about his decision-making ability, to say the least. The newly anointed Republican presidential candidate told the members of the press, there's people that say I can't make a decision. Well, you watch and see what decision I make when it comes to picking a vice president. That'll tell you everything you need to know about my decision-making. True story, ladies and gentlemen. Although George Herbert Walker Bush solicited suggestions from all over the place in the Republican Party as to who he might possibly choose. The Senate of the United States sent him a list that was described as embarrassingly long. Despite the fact that the Republican senators really cast a dragnet for just about anybody who was breathing and had a pulse and should be considered a vice president, it nevertheless failed to include Dan Quayle. But if you were George Herbert Walker Bush and considered to be, well, a wimp, That was the word they used back in 1988, the wimp factor. If you were going to shake off the idea that you were a wimp (laughs) and you're going to be in the top of the ticket, well, you better find someone in the bottom of the ticket that, you know, is a pygmy. It also wouldn't hurt if you followed the practice of previous Republican presidents, like Richard Nixon, in choosing a vice president that was basically impeachment insurance. I believe somewhere along the way, Bush 41 even made a crack about about that very fact. We all said back in the late 80s and early 90s that there was going to be no way anybody would ever impeach George Bush because then you'd have President Quayle. And before I go off delineating what I recall of the political career of the late president, I'm going to jump ship instead and 
quote what Nora Eisenberg had to say on Alternet on this same subject. Well, not the subject of his entire career, but the subject of what Bush considered his highest achievement, the 1991 Gulf War. The article in question was titled George Herbert Walker Bush and the Myth of the Good Gulf War. And since on this program we like deconstructing what we would consider to be political myths, we have to do this one. And I would note on a, uh, a personal level that I consider the 1991 Gulf War to be the last time I was completely duped by the powers that be. Because although I am deeply embarrassed to admit this now, I, I must admit it anyway, I bought into this BS about that war. Now I like to think I'm nobody's fool, although I can't resist quoting, I think it was H.L. Mencken who once said, the man who says exactly that, I'm nobody's fool, actually probably has his own suspicions. But uh, let's take up with what, what Nora Eisenberg has to say about this myth, more properly myths associated with the 1991 Gulf War. The first point she makes is that the Persian Gulf War in 1991 had been planned for years before Iraq invaded Kuwait. She notes in the piece, as legal scholar Francis Boyle has documented, soon after the 1988 termination of the eight-year Iraq-Iran War, the Pentagon began planning the destruction of Iraq. In October of 1990, Colin Powell referred to a new military plan for Iraq developed the year before. In early 1991, General Norman Schwarzkopf told the Senate Armed Services Committee of this new military strategy in the Gulf to protect U.S. access to and control over Gulf oil in the event of regional conflicts. And after the war, he referred to 18 months of planning for the campaign as commander of the U.S. Central Command. During January of 1990, massive quantities of United States weapons, equipment, and supplies were sent to Saudi Arabia in order to prepare for the war against Iraq. Again, we welcome your commentary on any and all of this, dear listeners. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We think she got part one right. Part two. The Bush administration gave Saddam Hussein a green light to invade Kuwait, then used it as an excuse for invading Iraq. And having reviewed this at some length before I even detail what she has to say about it, I, I endorse this position. Now, as you may or may not recall, dear listener, back in the summer of 1990, in this case July 25th of that year, there was a meeting that took place between the dictator of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and the U.S. ambassador to that country, April Glaspie. Notes Nora Eisenberg, Glaspie's own cable, released by WikiLeaks almost a decade ago, and long available at the Bush Library and on the website of none other than Margaret Thatcher, paints a picture of a U.S. government with a two-faced foreign policy. Saddam complained at the meeting that certain circles in the U.S. government were antagonistic to Iraq, and Glaspie agreed. Although with confidence and apparent sincerity, she assured him of the friendship and non-confrontational agenda of the President and the Secretary of State. In a follow-up cable four days later, Glaspie reported on her June 28th meeting with Iraqi Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz in which he complained of the U.S.'s increasingly provocative actions. Glaspie herself seems increasingly frustrated. 
She writes that it is important not to hit Iraq with bolts out of the blue, such as cessation of U.S. exports, which had come as a surprise even to her. In both cables, it was clear that Glasby was presenting the official, friendly position of the George H.W. Bush administration, just as behind-the-scenes government hawks were preparing for war. In her July 29th cable, Glasby offers the State Department advice on handling the matter, including keeping a low profile and reminding colleagues, as she had Saddam in the earlier meeting, that we have never taken substantive positions on inter-OPEC or Arab border disputes, which was the matter at hand. It should be noted that Glasby was not the only official to express a laissez-faire position. On July 26th at a Washington press conference, State Department spokeswoman Margaret Tutwiler was asked by a journalist if the U.S. had sent any diplomatic protests to Iraq for putting 30,000 troops on her border with Kuwait. I am entirely unaware of any such protest, Tutwiler replied. On July 31st, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs John Kelly testified to the U.S. Congress that, the United, that, quote, the United States has no commitment to defend Kuwait and the U.S. has no intention of defending Kuwait if it is attacked by Iraq, end quote. Two days later, on October 2nd, when Saddam's troops entered Kuwait, it's pretty clear that the Iraqi dictator had no reason to believe that the U.S. would come to Kuwait's defense with a half million troops. Or that when he tried to negotiate a dignified retreat through Arab leaders, the U.S. would refuse to talk to him. On Sunday, August 5th, George Bush announced after a weekend at Camp David, this will not stand. On August 6th, the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, received approval from the Saudis for a large U.S. deployment. It should be noted that I don't think that the author of this piece goes far enough. She doesn't clearly delineate the fact that when Saddam met April Glaspie and had complaints, probably some legitimate complaints about the Kuwaitis who were evidently tapping into Iraqi oil fields by sinking their wells in a horizontal direction. Well, he was considered some possible military actions to retaliate from this provocation. He was assured by April Glaspie, as this piece notes, that, well, if there was a conflict between the two nations, we would consider that a local matter. And Saddam, to his discredit, was dumb enough to believe this. Keep in mind, as per what's already been said here, the U.S. had been building up its military and planning for some military action in that region for some time before Saddam stupidly blundered into Kuwait. I do want to note, back at the time, a lot of people were saying nasty things about Iraq, which is, you know, not that hard to do. The Iraqi government, I mean, not necessarily the Iraqi people, who frankly deserve better than what they got from their government. But anyway, it was said back then that, you know, you can go to Iraq and the maps they have of that region down there show Kuwait as one of the provinces of Iraq, implying that, well, it looks as though those nefarious Iraqis were planning to invade a neighboring country and make it a province of Iraq. What people were forgetting was that Kuwait used to be a province of Iraq. British petroleum interests came on board, decided they'd get a better deal if they set Kuwait up as an independent nation, and did so. At any rate, back to the story of what happens next in this case, the thing that George Bush considered his highest achievement, this 1991 Gulf War. After assuring Saddam Hussein that anything he did would be considered a local affair, George Bush started comparing him to Hitler. That's what he said, I think, after he noted that this will not stand and that this represented naked aggression. 
item number three in the piece. The Bush 41 administration disinformed Congress and the public to drum up support for an unpopular war and bribed and bamboozled other countries. The author notes that if the CIA and Pentagon and by summer's end the President and Secretary of State were fixed on a war with Iraq during the fall of 1990, the American public and Congress were not. To change that, the week after Iraq invaded Kuwait, the Kuwaiti government disguised itself as Citizens for a Free Kuwait. They hired the global PR film of Hill and Knowlton to win America's hearts and minds. Craig Fuller, a close friend of Bush 41 and his chief of staff when he was vice president, was in charge of Hill Knowlton's Washington office. For $11 million, Fuller and more than 100 H&K executives across the country oversaw the selling of the Gulf War. They organized public rallies, they provided pro-war speakers, they lobbied politicians, they developed and distributed information kits and news releases, including scores of video news releases, prepackaged cassettes of propaganda, which were shown by TV stations and TV networks as if they were bona fide journalism and not paid for propaganda. H&K's research arm, the Worthland Group, which I'm sure is named after Dick Worthland, who was always in the news as Republican Party pollster, conducted daily polls to identify the messages and language that would resonate most with Americans. In the 1992 Emmy Award-winning Canadian Broadcasting Corporation documentary titled To Sell a War, a Worthland executive explained that their research had determined the most emotionally moving message to be Saddam Hussein was a madman who had committed atrocities even against his own people. Tremendous, tremendous power to do further damage. He needed to be stopped. I'm sorry to note, somehow back in 1991, I heard this crap and believed it. The article goes on. To fit the bill, H&K concocted stories, including one told by a 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl named Naida, stated to another H&K concoction, the House Human Rights Caucus, which, which they created to pass as a congressional committee, which it was not. According to the House Human Rights Caucus, Naira's full name would remain secret in order to deter the Iraqis from punishing her family back in occupied Kuwait. The girl wept as she testified before the caucus, apparently still shaken by the atrocities she witnessed as a volunteer in a Kuwait city hospital, where Iraqi soldiers had charged into the hospital room with babies in incubators and tossed the babies onto the cold floor to die. During the three months between Naira's testimony and the start of the war, the story of the babies tossed from their incubators stunned Americans. Bush told the story. Television anchors and talk show hosts recycled it for days. It was read in the congressional record as a fact and discussed at the United Nations General Assembly. But the fact of the matter is, Naira was a Kuwaiti royalty. She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to Washington. She never volunteered in a hospital. The whole thing was scripted for her. It was too late by then, of course. The war had already begun. And here, dear listeners, an item I was unaware of, or maybe only partially aware of. I'm not sure. Maybe I forgot this. But the fact is, top-secret satellite images that the Pentagon claimed to have of 250,000 Iraqi troops and 1,500 tanks massed on the Kuwaiti-Saudi border were alleged to be visible proof that Saddam would soon be advancing on Saudi Arabia. 
Yet, the St. Petersburg Times decided to go out and acquire two commercial Russian satellite images of the same area taken at the same time. And um, guess what? They showed no Iraqi troops near the Saudi border. And the scientific experts whom the Times hired to look at the images could identify nothing but sand at the supposed location of an advancing army. But, notes the piece, the St. Petersburg Times story evaporated and the Pentagon story stuck. When Bush addressed a joint session of Congress, September 11, 1990, he reported that developments in the Gulf were, quote, as significant as they were tragic, unquote. Iraqi troops and tanks had moved to the south, quote, to threaten Saudi Arabia, unquote. Under U.S. pressure, the U.N. Security Council adopted unprecedented resolutions allowing nations to use, quote, all means necessary, unquote, for their enforcement. The U.S. won Security Council votes for forgiving huge loans, recognized dictatorships diplomatically, agreed to sell arms, and more. In her analysis of this, Frances Boyle identified specific violations and subversions of the United Nations Charter in these activities, most importantly the mandate to negotiate peaceful resolutions to international disputes. According to Boyle, in this decision to go to war and its conduct of the war itself, the U.S. perpetrated a Nuremberg crime against peace. As James Baker has often admitted, winning allies for the first Gulf War in 1991 involved, quote, cajoling, extracting, threatening, and occasionally buying votes, unquote. Anyway, I'm not going to read the entire piece to you, but suffice it to say that, at least from my personal perspective, when after 100 hours into the war, George Bush called it off, uh, I, I knew I'd been had and the nation had been had. It occurred to me at the time that what they were going to do was leave Saddam in power and wait for the time in the perhaps not too distant future when we needed to have another Iraqi war, at which point it would be launched. As you may or may not be aware, dear listener, within hours of the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and others were already dusting off the plans for war with Iraq, even though Iraq had nothing to do whatsoever with the 9-11 attacks. Although actually, before I leave this this alternate piece. There is one thing I do need to cite from it. Well, two, actually. The reason that Osama bin Laden later gave for the 9-11 attacks was that during the first Gulf War, American troops were on what he considered to be sacred Saudi soil. So that's something to keep in mind. And finally, there's a great atrocity. Well, there's many, but I'm just going to cite perhaps the most egregious example of atrocities in this war, the war that George Bush 41 considered to be his greatest achievement, which was that Seymour Hersh's 2000 New Yorker article, Overwhelming Force, exposed the highway of death. Two days after the UN and Soviets brokered a ceasefire, and the day before peace talks were to begin, two-star general Barry McCaffrey overrode his division commander, and ordered his 24th division to engage in an all-out attack on the retreating Republican Guard tank divisions on their way back to Baghdad from Kuwait. As Hirsch describes it, 
Apache attack helicopters, Bradley fighting vehicles, and artillery units from the 24th Division pummeled the five-mile-long Iraqi column for hours, destroying some 700 Iraqi tanks, armored cars, and trucks, and killing not only Iraqi soldiers, but civilians and children as well. There were no U.S. casualties on what came to be called the Highway of Death. Lieutenant General Ronald Griffith, commander of the 1st Armored Division of 7th Corps, told Seymour Hersh that the Iraqi tanks were facing backwards atop a trailer truck taking them back to Baghdad. It was just a bunch of tanks in a train, and he made it a battle. Hersh reports Griffith saying, McCaffrey made it a battle when it never was one. That's the thing that bothered me most. Anyway, we've only got about three more, four more minutes left in this segment, so let me just add my own personal observations. George Herbert Walker Bush had a lot of powerful friends. He was the son of a Connecticut senator and thus had one foot in the old Republican Northeastern establishment. He decided to make his fortune by going down to Texas, so he had another foot with the Texas oil money connection to the Republican Party. I'm not sure that anybody ever thought that highly of his abilities. He served as a United States congressman twice. He ran for Senate in Texas in 1960 and lost to Ralph Yarborough. He ran for Senate again six years later in 1970 and lost to Lloyd Benson. The Republican Party kept him on board at the height of disdain held by the Republicans for the United Nations. and They made George Bush the UN ambassador. Then, during Watergate, Bush became the head of the Republican National Committee and basically drug his feet about doing anything about Watergate up to the moment when it was clear Nixon was about to be impeached. Then, he suddenly developed reservations about Nixon continuing on as president. Jerry Ford made him the head of the CIA in 1976. He was alleged to be an outsider coming in to take the reins at CIA, but there's compelling evidence that George Herbert Walker Bush had been in the CIA and affiliated with CIA people dating back to the early 1960s in the time of the Bay of Pigs. He decided to run for president in 1980. There were at least a half a dozen guys that wanted to be the Republican nominee for president at that time, including Ronald Reagan. Bush did well enough to appear to be the runner-up in the selection process, although he pretty much got shellacked by Reagan. But no matter, he wound up back on the ticket as in the lower half of it, in 1980. We're not going to say a heck of a lot more about this today, but it should be noted, at least in passing, that three months into the Reagan presidency, when Reagan was shot in the chest and came very close to dying, on that same day, the would-be assassin John Hinckley's brother was set to have lunch in Denver, Colorado, with Neil Bush. Apparently the Hinckley's and Bush family went way back together. When the Iran-Contra scandal broke and it was clear that a lot of the operations were being run through the vice president's office, at least that was the case when a man named Eugene Hassenfuss got shot down over, I guess it was Nicaragua. All the news stories at the time referred to operations being run through the vice president's office, and when asked to comment on it, Bush said he was out of the loop. He also traveled to the Philippines, where he described Ferdinand Marcos as the Abraham Lincoln of that country. In the ramp-up to the short-and-sweet war that America conducted against Panama, allegedly to get rid of President Manuel Noriega, <laughs> when asked about meetings that he had just had with, with Noriega, Bush said he couldn't remember them. And uh, we got to close it up before we can even talk about the fact that he got beaten 
by Ross Perot and Bill Clinton in 1992. But during the Clinton administration, one son, Jeb, became the governor of Florida, and another son named George became the governor of Texas. It should be noted that Jeb was considered to be the smartest Bush. But as our favorite comedian Will Durst has pointed out, calling Jeb Bush the smart Bush is kind of like calling Moe the smart stooge. You know what? We're out of time for this segment. That's enough talking about Bush today. Let's talk about other things in our second half, which will start shortly. Don't go away. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.